because of his perfect holiness, God's hatred of sin and his anger toward it is provoked not just by the worst of sins, but by all sins, including yours and including mine. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Believers are called in Scripture to examine our lives for sin and its patterns. But do you ever excuse some of your sins as really not all that bad? How does God view it? Taking a phrase from mathematics, does God grade on a curve when it comes to some sins? Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing in his current series with part eight of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. You'll be reminded today that God does not excuse sin in any way. In fact, as Tom will remind you, the Bible pictures sinners as living under the shadow of the approaching wrath of a perfect and holy God. His anger towards sin is provoked not just by the worst of sins, but by all sins. Today's message is a call for self-examination, believer, as well as one of hope as Tom continues to unpack the text as found in 1 John 1 and 2. Let's join our teacher to find out more on The Word Unleashed. At the temple in Jerusalem, people went up to the temple two times a day. They went up at the time of the morning sacrifice and the afternoon sacrifice to pray. You see that in the book of Acts. And so here he is at the time of the sacrifice, the animals being killed, it's be, it's, life is being offered for the sins of the people, and what this tax collector says in Jesus' story is, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. Be satisfied. May your justice and wrath against my sins be satisfied with the sacrifice that's being offered right now inside the temple. So those are the only occurrences of this word. But in, despite the number of occurrences in the New Testament, this word group is foundational to our faith. If you don't understand it, as I said, you don't understand the gospel. What does it mean? Well, the word propitiation and the word group I've just shown you means the satisfaction or turning away of God's wrath. The satisfaction of or the turning away of God's wrath. That is what it means in the in secular Greek, when you find it in the secular Greek writers, it's what it means in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated before the time of our Lord, 100, 200 years before Christ. It's the Bible that was used predominantly in the New Testament era, the Septuagint. That's the Hebrew Scriptures translated into Greek. This word and this word group is used often in the Septuagint. One of those uses is very enlightening. It's used of the mercy seat. Now, you've got to remind, remind yourself here of the structure of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. There was a place inside of it called the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, that box, golden, gold-covered box that had inside of it the law of God. It had the Ten Commandments written with the very finger of God himself. On top of that box was a lid. That lid was called the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice, first for himself and then for the people, and he would go into the Holy of Holies. They actually tied a rope to his ankle in case 
He went in, and he wasn't really prepared, and God struck him dead. They didn't hear the bells. They would, they'd pull him out with the rope. But he would go in there to sprinkle blood on the, on the mercy seat, as it's called, on the lid of that box. And he would sprinkle the sacrifice. Why? What was that s- symbolic of? Well, remember, inside that box was the law of God. Above that box was the symbolic presence of God in the glory cloud. When he sprinkled the blood, the blood covered the law from the sight of God. In other words, it's as if our breaking the law was covered by the blood of the sacrifice. That's the picture behind this word, the satisfying of God's just anger against the the breach of his law. Now, the Christians to whom John wrote this letter were very familiar in first century Asia Minor with the concept of satisfying the wrath of the gods. If you're familiar with ancient history, you know that not only the Romans, but also the Greeks had a pantheon of gods. You can read about them in Greek mythology, and, and the gods of Greece were often angry. And so some well-intentioned and some not well-intentioned liberal commentators, both, have come to this word and said, oh, that concept can't be true of the true God, then this word must mean something else. It can't mean what I've just defined it as. It needs, to, it needs to be interpreted some other way. And so they'll say it just means forgiveness or it means cleansing. Well, if you study the word, I promise you that doesn't stand up. And if you want a defense of that, I'm not going to take time now to argue every one of those details, but if you want to delve into that further, you can read the classic Christian defense of the meaning of the word I've given to you. It's in a book by Leon Morris called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. By the time you're done with that book, I promise you, you will be more than thoroughly convinced. But while we're talking about God's anger, we need to understand that there are profound differences between the pagan gods and their anger and the pagan attempts to satisfy their God's anger and the satisfaction of the one true God. Let me point out the three main differences. You gotta get these out of your mind, all right? First of all, the anger of the pagan gods was sinful, petty, and capricious. You read Greek mythology, you know that you never knew when they would become angry, and you never knew what would set them off. But when you look at the Scripture, the anger of the living and true God grows solely out of His pure and undefiled holiness. The wrath of God, listen carefully, in biblical terms, the wrath of God is simply the blazing, white-hot response of his holy character to everything that stands opposed to what is good and right and pure. In other words, it is the holy response of his character to everything that is contrary to who he is. There is only one thing that makes our God angry, and that is sin. He's not like the pagan gods. Second difference is that the wrath of the pagan gods was a sinful, uncontrollable outburst like our own anger. Their anger was like the the emotional outburst of an immature child. If you read the Old and New Testaments, you'll find that God's wrath is not like that at all. God's wrath is very, very slow. In fact, he describes himself as what? Slow to anger. It takes God a long time to get hot. God's wrath is a settled, holy disposition against sinners and their sin. It's not some immature outburst. There's a third difference, and this one's absolutely key. In pagan religions, the worshiper had to satisfy the offended deity. 
You had to come up with some way to satisfy, to placate the anger of the God who was picking on you. J.I. Packer puts it this way, the various gods take offense at the smallest things, and then they take it out on you by manipulating circumstances to your hurt. The only course at that point is to humor and mollify them by an offering. The rule with the offerings is the bigger the better. Human sacrifice in particular is expensive but effective. Thus, pagan religion appears as callous commercialism, bribery, and the appeasing of celestial bad tempers, end quote. That's pagan satisfaction of the gods. But instead of demanding, in the case of the true God, instead of demanding a bribe from us, instead of demanding some sort of payment, some sort of propitiation or satisfaction that we supply to curb his anger against us, the true God set forth his own son as the propitiation, the satisfaction of his just and holy anger. So there's an understanding of its meaning. But let's go next to the need for propitiation. Why is this even necessary? What's the the backdrop, the background, as to why this word even comes into play when when it comes to our interaction with God? Well, look at verse 2 again. And he himself is the propitiation, notice, for our sins. There's the reason we need propitiation. It's because of our sins. Now, there's so much behind that I just want to take a moment and step back and give you the theological grid, the biblical framework for understanding what he says here. Here's why you and I need propitiation. Let me just give you several biblical assertions. Number one, God is perfectly holy and entirely without sin. We saw that in 1 John 1.5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Secondly, God created moral laws for us that reflect his holy character. In other words, God said in 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. In other words, I want you to live in keeping with the way I am as your creator. What, what are those laws? What does it mean to be holy? Well, our Lord defined it in the broadest possible terms in Mark, cha- excuse me, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 39. You remember there he's asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? To which he replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, here's God's law. Love God and love other people and love them perfectly. It's your whole being. By the way, if you want to earn your way to heaven, there's your checklist. You just love God perfectly every moment of your life, and you love your neighbor unselfishly where you never say a sinful word, never have a sinful thought, never have an outburst of anger, never misspeak the truth, never do anything that would be a sin against your neighbor, and you'll be in. Obviously, you see that's not possible. That's why we need a Savior. But that's God's holy law. It's love God and love your neighbor. So then... He gives us a sort of further breakdown of that in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. You remember, God speaks with his own voice from Mount Sinai, and he gives the ten Hebrew words. The first four of them tell us what love for God looks like, and the final six tell us what love for man looks like. And so he he fleshes it out a little bit. I wish I had time. I'd take you back there and show you that every single one of us, without exception, have shattered 
every single one of those commandments, if not with our actions, with our attitudes and thoughts. But they're a reflection of God's holy character. Romans 7:12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Thirdly, in his holy justice, God is righteously angry with the sinner and his sin. In his holy justice, God is righteously angry with the sinner and his sin. You see, there, there are these mistaken ideas out there about how God responds when we sin. Some unbelievers see sin as a kind of harmless peccadillo. It has no personal or legal ramifications at all. They see God's response to their sin something like that of a doting grandparent to their grandchild. It's like, okay, well, maybe he shouldn't have done that, but it's okay. That's not our God. That may be your grandparent. That may be your own grandparenting, but that's not God. The other mistake unbelievers make is to see sin solely as a personal offense against God that has personal ramifications. They picture God's response to their sin something like that of a good friend who's predisposed to accept us and like us, but we've personally offended them by our actions, and it's going to be okay. Yes, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, they love me. They, they appreciate me, and we'll make it up, and it'll be okay. A lot of people think of God like that. But the biblical picture of sin is much different. In biblical terms, our sins are crimes against the very person of God himself. They separate us relationally from God, but more importantly, listen carefully, they render us legally guilty before God, our judge, in the courtroom of his justice. That's our big problem. And as a righteous judge, he is rightly filled with anger because of the nature of our crimes. Can you imagine being the judge at some of these high-profile cases that we've seen in the last five to ten years in our country where it's clear that a crime, an egregious, a horrific crime has taken place? Can you imagine being the judge in that setting and sitting there listening day after day after day to the, the detailed testimony of what this person has done, the horrific nature of their crimes? How could you be that judge and not be angered by that sin? Well, how much more would be true of God? You see, we do get this. With certain sins, we understand what it is to get righteously angry. I mean, most of us get righteously angry when we think about the genocide that Hitler did to the Jews. Six million of them killed. We're all filled with righteous anger when we hear about the sexual abuse of a child, and rightly so. We're all filled with anger when we hear about an act of terrorism against innocent bystanders. We're filled with anger when we hear about a gratuitous murder in which a person just picks a human being at random and takes their life for no good reason. We're filled with anger. But our problem is we're filled with anger toward those sins, but that's not our response toward many sins, especially our own. And so we kind of grade on a curve. God doesn't. Because of his perfect holiness, God's hatred of sin and his anger toward it is provoked not just by the worst of sins, but by all sins, including yours and including mine. Now, listen, I get this is a very unpopular concept, but 
This is the reality, folks. We can put our head in the sand and pretend this isn't true, but this is what the Bible teaches. Scripture pictures sinners as living under the shadow of the approaching wrath of God. You go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you find God's wrath against man and his sin described 585 times in the Old Testament using more than 20 Hebrew words. For example, Ezra 8.22, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. You say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. You know, there are a lot of liberals out there who would say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he, was, he had a problem. He was filled with anger. But, you know, the New Testament's all about God's love. I want to say to those people, have you even read the New Testament? I mean, we're in Revelation. Guess what the end is? The wrath of the Lamb and Him who sits on the throne. You come to the New Testament and you, you read just a few verses after John 3.16, a wonderful promise of the gospel. But what if you don't respond to that, that wonderful message of the gospel? John 3.36 says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It stays on him like a stain he can't get rid of. God's wrath. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it doesn't really matter how you feel about your relationship to God. If you haven't repented and believed in His Son, John 3.36 says, God's wrath is on you this very moment. It is lingering over you, and someday it will break out in its full fury, just like a, a thunderstorm. It's just what Scriptures teach. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, as Paul begins the bad news so that the good news of the gospel makes sense, he says in Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's rebellion against God's person. That's a refusal to, to fear God, a refusal to love God, a refusal to worship God. That's ungodliness. And his wrath is being revealed against all unrighteousness. That's rebellion against God's law. That's a refusal to do what God said. His wrath is being revealed. The rest of Romans 1 is talking about the wrath of abandonment, where God gives people over to their sin. He gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. But that's not the only kind of wrath. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? He says, listen, when you look at your life and you see all the good things God's brought into your life, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ this morning, God has been very good to you. He has showered you with good things. He's filled your heart, Acts 14, 17, with food and gladness this week. What do you think God intends for that to tell you? Let me plead with you, don't think for a moment, if you're, not a, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, that all of those blessings means God's okay with you. It's okay. Things are going to work out. Notice what it says here. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? 
If you don't repent, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up more of God's anger for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Listen, don't you for a moment believe that God's patience with you and his goodness towards you somehow means that you and God are okay. If you haven't repented and believed in his son, you are storing up God's wrath for the future, and it will come. I hate to be the bearer of that news, but that's what the scriptures teach. Ephesians 2.3 says, we were all by nature children of wrath. The catechism asks, what does every sin deserve? The answer, the wrath and curse of God. Unbelievers live constantly under the wrath of God. Number four, in His holy justice and wrath, God must punish our sin and rebellion with spiritual, physical, and eternal death. God must punish our sin and rebellion with spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Eternal death is the second death, as it's described at the end of Revelation. Eternal death in hell. Genesis 2.17 says, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. They died spiritually that very day. Ezekiel 18.4, The soul who sins will die. Romans 5.12, Through one man sin entered into the world, Adam, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, death of all of its varieties. Spiritual, physical, and eternal. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. What you get paid for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And number five, God's wrath is only satisfied when the just payment of death has been made. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood. That's not talking about cutting your finger. It's talking about death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, the penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay death. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, understand this. The wrath of God abides on you this very moment, and someday you will face that reality when you stand before him. Don't misunderstand his patience and goodness with you. It's intended to lead you to repentance. I plead with you to understand you have two choices before you. One choice is for you to refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, God's Son, and then you will bear the wrath of God forever. The other is for you to repent and believe in the propitiation. He himself is the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And if you will believe in him, then Jesus on the cross suffered all the wrath that your sins deserved and you can be forgiven his life in exchange for yours without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness but he did shed his blood that's your hope that's my hope let's pray together That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of his current series titled The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Join us next time for part nine as Tom once again takes us to God's Word.
Well, Tom, you closed today's message hinting at the incredible cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Could you briefly mention what's in store for us next time? Well, today has been the important bad news. We really have to understand that God hates sin and that he must deal with sin in justice and in wrath. But next time we'll consider the good news that God has provided a way for us to be washed clean from our guilt, to be forgiven, to come from the just wrath of God toward our sin to a place in which we stand before him just like Jesus Christ, his son. And all of that is possible through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, poured out as a sacrifice in our place. He is our only hope, and he's a sure hope, a certain hope. In him, there is forgiveness of sin. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.